Okay, hello everybody. Today is Friday. Another Anything Goes Friday. Welcome to the show. This is the day where any subject is fair game. Right now I'm holding my copy of the book Bond of Secrecy, My Life with CIA Spy and Watergate Conspirator E. Howard Hunt, and it is written by St. John Hunt, who is his son. This book was provided to me by Playtime, and anybody can contact the show at blackboxonlineradio at aol.com the way Playtime did. You can also get me on Instagram at blackboxnid88. My personal Facebook is also in the description box there. Or you can simply drop your ideas in the comments section below. What do you want to hear about on this channel for the Anything Goes segment, as well as for the AMAs? Um, as you heard in the introduction, Wednesday is the Ask Me Anything Day, where I respond to your questions and comments. In the near future, I'm going to be doing those in somewhat of a different way. Normally, I just use absolutely any questions or comments that come out, and sometimes I begin with a borrowed question, and so on. However, I think that they're going to be more or less focused on one subject, whereas maybe it'll just be a Zodiac Killer AMA, or a Charles Manson AMA, or perhaps even something like this today, a CIA or JFK assassination AMA. So are there any um, ideas that you have for a future episode, especially one that has been previously covered? Any of those topics that I just mentioned have numerous episodes here on this channel, JFK, Manson, the Zodiac Killer, other serial killers, or something more general, just like conspiracy theories. And there's just going to be like one theme that is going to be devoted to the episode. So please drop your uh, questions and comments below that can be used in future uh, episodes here on Black Box Online Radio. And as always, please like and subscribe. And some other things to look out for is that I am now the host of Astro Psych 400. That is another YouTube channel here online. And um, I did a 12-part series on astrology, doing one episode on each of the star signs. I'm very skeptical of astrology, but just um, wanted to talk about something different. And I made some observations, though, that I was quite curious about, you know, over the years about astrology and personality traits that could be somewhat connected to your star sign. It's a 12-part series called Astro Psych 400, which is here on YouTube under that name. And the last announcement is, I have a book coming out later this year at some point. I can't give a release date yet, but it is called Killer on a White Horse by me, Nid Dahan. It is a novel. The source material that was the inspiration for it came from the Zodiac Manson connection. The idea that there is this uh, link between the Zodiac Killer and the Manson family, and it's absolutely unrelated in terms of any real characters. All the names have been changed. It's set on the East Coast, not the West Coast. It's set in the contemporary times, not in the 1960s. But that was, I guess, what you would call the the event that inspired the book, Killer on a White Horse by me. Ned Dahan will be available soon. However, it looks like it's only going to be coming out electronically, so it's a good time to get your Kindle ready, or if you use any type of tablet. I read my Kindle books on my phone. I'm all about the Kindle app, so good way to... Uh, follow along with all of that stuff, and I'll definitely do a bigger announcement once the book is coming out. This book here, Bond of Secrecy, talking all about E. Howard Hunt by his son, St. John Hunt, is um, one that we'll go through today, but I need to give the um, preliminary statement that this is not a traditional book review. I don't really do those here on this channel. This is just going to be a discussion, just going to be looking at some of the comments, ideas, and uh, statements that have been made by St. John Hunt in his book, Bond of Secrecy. With a traditional book review, I feel those 
have more of a the more more analysis on like the writing style and the way that this um person is conveying the message and so on. So if I could just have one sentence dedicated to a traditional book review, I would say that if you ever read this book, Bond of Secrecy by St. John Hunt, it's really about telling his story. It's not only about the CIA, it's also very much about him, which he has every right to do. But when I picked this thing up, I was just ready, like, all right, let's find out. Let's learn more about some inside information about the CIA. And I'm just so pumped up and hyped up for that. And I found that the sections when he's talking about his personal life, spending time with his girlfriend, his brother and sister, I found that those were a little bit uh, more difficult to... um truly digest, and it's at no fault of his own. He can write his own story any way that he wants. I'm just like, okay, let's get to how is the world working? How is the CIA manipulating things behind closed doors? A large portion of this book is dedicated to the Kennedy assassination. However, in the introduction that is written by Douglas Caddy, there's a foreword by Jesse Ventura, but there's an introduction by Douglas Caddy to this book, Bond of Secrecy, he talks about how one of the cushier jobs with the CIA is setting up resorts in tropical parts of the world, even Central America, say, for example, Nicaragua, and then diplomats are lured there because they might be um, attending a real function, or they might be doing something that is a little bit more risque, such as seeing a prostitute or something like that, and then the CIA is completely monitoring these resorts that are in various parts of the world, and then, boom, they've caught them in a scandal. They have blackmail on them. They're just using hotels and luxurious places around the world to catch people in these type of blackmail operations. I don't know why the general public has such a hard time accepting this. We've even been through the Jeffrey Epstein scandal, learning all about that stuff in where? The U.S. Virgin Islands, like especially on the island of Little St. James. People are lured there on the pretenses of, um, well, with Jeffrey Epstein, it definitely seems like they were lured there to attend sexually related functions. With the stuff that um, St. John Hunt was talking about in this book, and it's actually the writing of Douglas Caddy that I was just citing, he is um, highlighting things that are more just about, okay, I mean, diplomats are staying in a hotel, and then they get lured to a place in the hotel, and they get set up, and then now they can be blackmailed. The general public has a very hard time talking about those things. I mean, they just try and dismiss that as a conspiracy theory. But there's that saying out there, wherever there's smoke, there's fire, with the exception of dry ice and smoke machines. And it seems like there's a lot of smoke coming from that. And it seems like the, the CIA is doing that much more frequently than we think. And it's not only the CIA. It can be any type of major organization that has the funds. I mean, I'm not saying anything about an Epstein-CIA connection right now. Instead, I would say that anybody that has the funds has the capability to set up an operation like that. But because this book was written by the son of E. Howard Hunt, I would like to give just the smallest Google Facts introduction of E. Howard Hunt. E. Howard Hunt was an American intelligence officer and author. From 1949 to 1970, Hunt served as an officer in the Central Intelligence Agency, particularly in the United States' involvement in regime change in Latin America, hence that resort I was just talking about in Nicaragua, including the 1954 Guatemalan coup d'etat and the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion. I would like to go to a section here in the book Bond of Secrecy, and this is on page 43. 
1963, my father and Frank Sturgis met with David Morales, a contract killer for the CIA, at a safe house in Miami. Morales explained that he had picked up, he had been picked up by Bill Harvey, a rogue and unstable CIA agent with a long history of black ops for secret off-the-board assignments. It was Morales's understanding that this project was coming down through a chain of command, starting with Vice President Lyndon Johnson. Intrigued, my father listened on. Harvey had told Morales that he had been brought in by Cord Meyer, a CIA agent with internal connections, who, in turn, was working with David Phillips and Antonio Visciani. Phillips was a CIA station chief in Mexico City, and deeply involved in the dangerous world of the Cuban underground. Vessiani was the Cuban founder of the violent Alpha 66 group, bent on overthrowing Castro by any means necessary. All these men shared common ground, a hatred for Kennedy. He was dangerous to their vision of America's political future, and had abandoned them in their time of need by refusing to bail out the Bay of Pigs fiasco. All right, are you, like, noticing some immediate red flags? Is your brain not going into overdrive? I'm sure there's something about that paragraph there that sets something off for you. Most notably, that the CIA is the founder of certain radical groups around the world, agitators, people who try to cause internal uprisings, and then it just gets blamed off of whatever makeshift name that has been attributed to it. I mean, number one, let's look at that thing near the end of the paragraph. The violent Alpha 66 group. No, it wasn't the CIA. It was Alpha 66. I mean, this will expand into some other ones that you can think about in the 21st century. Maybe some names are even coming to mind. I just don't want to get caught up talking about perhaps the situation in the Middle East or something like that. And um, let's focus more on this book here by St. John Hunt. Here's another one, though, about the way that the CIA functions. All right, contract killers, that's one. Black ops, off-the-board assignments, people going rogue. And I think it's always important to remember that when CIA operatives are conducting these types of activities, it is possible that they could be doing things in a roguish way. They could be going rogue and doing things that are off of the designated assignment, for lack of a better term. And I think that that's important to remember because that would mean that it's not coming from the top. All these people out there who are saying that if someone has a really big secret, it can't be kept under control. Well, if you have one CIA operative going rogue and doing something on their own volition and getting away with it, well, that isn't like the president. That's not somebody like Lyndon Johnson ordering anything or whoever is president, whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden. I mean, they wouldn't be required to give any type of order if a CIA operative is going rogue. And as far as contract killers go, um, I think that that is something that is also heavily downplayed by the media, but that is one that most people are aware of. The thing about how people are lured to resorts and then set up with sexual blackmail, for some reason the general public really doesn't like to talk about it. I think people are fully aware that contract killers exist. But the thing that really gets downplayed is this idea of internal agitators. John Perkins, the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, called them the jackals. He said there are three ways that um, 
a government can be overthrown, especially a government that isn't very powerful, but isn't going to play ball with the agenda of the elites or whatever circle it would be. It doesn't only have to be the United States of America, the elite circles, the oligarchs. If a nation doesn't want to play ball with them, there are three things that can happen. The first is they can try and control a situation economically. As I said, John Perkins is the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and he says that he was an economic hitman. He would try and manipulate the situation economically, crash certain markets, cause internal... Um, this um, dysfunction. The second thing they can do is send in the jackals. These are the types of internal agitators that are meant to cause an uprising, but make it look like it was done by individuals within the country, as opposed to an outside force such as the CIA, as opposed to any type of outside force. And um, you just heard of that name here, Alpha 66 mentioned in the book by St. John Hunt. So that's the second way. And the third way is that if that doesn't work, then they can just do full-scale military invasion. There are many ways to obtain power around the world and use power in an abusive way. Now, I would like to go to a different section in the book. And um, first, I'll read something. And this is from chapter 18. And I actually have to read this in kind of reverse order, read some of the uh, concluding paragraphs first, and then go back to the beginning and I will share um, the reason why in just a second, but it says, this is from page 85. He flew back to New York, and I went back to Eureka and waited. He called me the next week and said that his boss had approved the story in a meeting at that afternoon. Would I be willing to fly to New York to tape interviews? Wow, this was really big. Another week passed, and he called me this time with bad news. As much as I wanted to run with this story, and think that it, I think it's a very important one, St. John, I've been shut down. Shut down? What does that mean? I said. Well, I can't go into the details, but it came from the top. What am I supposed to tell you? What I'm supposed to tell you is that all of our time slots are booked and that will happen the, till the fall, so we'll have to get back to you later. It's clear that this important story had been overlooked by the major news media because the powers that control them at the time, and money, into books shows that support for the lone gunman theory. Just look at the two widely acclaimed books, Case Closed by Victor Posner and the lengthy Reclaiming History by ex-crime solver Vincent Bugliosi. That book is 1,600 pages thick and weighs a ton. Bugliosi was asked on a radio show what he thought about St. John Hunt, and he replied that... Um, excuse me, turning the pages a little bit too fast there. You know, St. John Hunt isn't credible, Mr. Bugliosi slipped by the point. It's not my credibility that you need to judge. This is, that's a response that is written uh, from St. John Hunt to Vincent Bugliosi. It's not my credibility that you need to judge. I am only the messenger. Call my father a liar if you don't believe his undisputed personal statements made when... He knew the end was near, but don't shift the burden of proof onto me. You can't say that my father's own words aren't at least worthy of further investigation. I have his memos, his tapes, and he gave me the task of bringing this into the world. There are still surprises left for people like Posner, 60 Minutes, and Vincent Bugliosi. So, um, Vincent Bugliosi is, of course, more famous for being the prosecutor in the Charles Manson trial, and... He wrote a book called Helter Skelter, co-authored it actually, but Helter Skelter by um, 
Bugliosi went on to become the best-selling true crime book of all time, and I just want to bear this in mind about how we're going to talk about St. John Hunt's credibility, because the beginning part of chapter 18, which I will read to provide context, will um, give us some insight into that, and I want this to just be somewhat of a balanced discussion, not taking any side with that, so let's... um go back to the beginning of chapter 18 and look at some of the experiences that St. John Hunt will share with us. A couple of curious things happened to me just after the Rolling Stone article appeared. There was a break-in at the house where I had been renting a room, and a few days after that someone tried to run me off a very dark and deserted road. I didn't see anything very sinister or conspiratorial about either incident, but some friends who know people that might know these things, and they warn me about my safety. The break-in at the house left no traces of entry, and all the usual stuff was still untouched. There was a stereo, CDs, computers, DVDs, TVs, and nothing was touched. The only evidence whatsoever that about whoever did this was that they were looking for some papers. All of the files had been gone through. Whatever they were looking for, it could have been the documents and memos that my father had given me, outlining the plot to kill Kennedy. Or it could have been, I don't know what to think. And they, I mean, that's kind of an odd sentence to write. It could have been dot, 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 I don't know what to think. Does this kind of thing actually happen in the real world? Do spooks break into people's homes? Was Dick Nixon tricky? I can answer that one. Yes, Dick N Nixon was tricky. Then again, wouldn't professionals have made it look like a normal robbery by a drug fiend? Two nights later, I was driving down Samoa Boulevard out of out near the dunes next to Humboldt Bay. It's a dark stretch of sandy, windswept, two-lane blacktop with no streetlights to speak of. It was late, and I was returning to my house from my girlfriend Mona's apartment in Arcata. There was some no, there was nobody else on the road. When we got closer and closer, I saw the headlights speeding up behind me. But then they pulled back. They were about ten or more car lanes behind me when they sped up again. They came so fast, faster and faster, with their high beams on. So I swerved to avoid a collision. My car almost flipped on the sandy soil near the dunes. Okay, that's the beginning, though, talking um, about how he claims that he has some documents from his father revealing information about the Kennedy assassination. But I thought it was rather odd that he concluded the chapter by sharing that stuff about Vincent Bugliosi, who attacks St. John Hunt's credibility. Because I think that this is a very awkward way of trying to defend your credibility by first throwing out... Um, unproven accusations, but then giving the disclaimer or the conditions, all right, well, I don't think there is any significance to these events. I mean, like, let's look at his exact word here. I didn't see anything very sinister or conspiratorial about either event, but some friends, dot, dot, dot. I mean, so he's giving, like, the disclaimer, hey, this could be nothing, but um, maybe somebody did try to do this, maybe they didn't. Well, that just sounds like someone's trying to pull a fast one on me. And as I said, I'm not taking any particular stance. I can definitely accept that the CIA are very big on manipulating events behind uh, closed doors, but I don't want to get caught up into the concept of cherry-picking for, 
for getting a desired result. I frequently tell this story on the channel, but just to say it one more time, back in 2017, I had been reading up a lot on the CIA, as well as perhaps even just on conspiracy theorists and what they had to say, and I shared something from Dr. Webster Tarpley, who is the host of World Crisis Radio in the American System. I shared it on a forum talking about conspiracy theories, and some guy wrote back, and forgive my language, but this is what he said. He said, are you retarded? You must be a moron. And I was like, what are you talking about? And we went back and forth, and I was telling him to read John Stockwell, to read John Perkins, who I previously mentioned, as well as Richard Norton Smith, and just all this stuff. But then he finally explained that he was ex-military intelligence and said, I really just get irate when people start talking about conspiracy theories. I've dealt with this firsthand. That's not what's happening. These people are just cherry-picking to get a desired result. And, you know, of course, we both cooled off at then, and I asked him a little bit more about his military experiences because I want to know the truth. And this chapter really bothered me. Because St. John Hunt is saying that, um, okay, these two events happened, I don't know why they happened, but um, then maybe it was because of this, I mean, maybe it's not, it's like someone is um, trying to play at your emotions, but if he ever gets caught in a lie, then there's just that escape rope, there's that get out of jail free card, no, I said very clearly, I didn't think it was sinister, He's allowing the reader to draw the connections in their own mind, and I don't really like that with this particular chapter here. But then, and the reason why I didn't like it is because later on, he goes on to try and defend his credibility. He's like, okay, you're pulling a fast one on me, or you are saying some things that are like just glowing with the get-out-of-jail-free card, and then you're saying, oh yeah, but I have good credibility. I mean, once you compare yourself to Vincent Bugliosi, yeah, absolutely. You're going to have better credibility than he does. And I do think that St. John Hunt does, because I don't know that much about his personal life. Vincent Pugliosi supposedly beat up his mistress to the point where she had a miscarriage, as well as harassing his own milkman because he thought that the guy was having an affair with his wife and fathered an illegitimate child. And Vincent Pugliosi seems like a very evil person. But I really just want to know, how is the CIA operating and as you can tell, there are going to be a lot of things in this book about the Kennedy assassination. But I'm much more fascinated with the overall big picture of how the CIA functions. What do they do behind the scenes? Because is that conspiratorial? Absolutely. But I don't mind. I mean, like, I'm not going to dismiss something just because it's a conspiracy theory. Two or more people plotting or planning usually for a malicious reason. That's what a conspiracy is, and I've already said some very big points here. To recap, number one, the CIA has black ops. Number two, they have contract killers. Number three, people can go rogue and do things that are not in line with their CIA assignments. Number four, the CIA lures people to certain locations, and then they try to blackmail them or have them set up or have operations that are going on with luring diplomats to certain locations, and they do this by setting up their own resorts and where they have like a resort staked out, all of that. And I mean, you can see very clearly during the 1960s, there was an enormous amount of animosity toward Cuba. If you just watch any documentary on the CIA, sooner or later they probably will mention Cuba. I think it was Dark Secrets of the CIA, which you can see here on YouTube for free, or at least that's where I watched it, if it's still up there. And it uh, featured Ralph McGeehy, who's author, the author of the book Deadly Deceit. But also, there was a guy just telling a story about how 
when he was in the CIA, his job was to poison a milk truck in Cuba that was going to be sent to a school cafeteria. Kids were going to be drinking poisoned milk. If that is true, I mean, that's some very evil stuff. I mean, I mean, I get that you don't like Fidel Castro, but bringing in innocent children into this. Now, I said that the introduction to this book is written by Jesse Ventura, and to go back to the beginning, here um, it says, Stated simply, something stinks. By the way, it's really hard to do a Jesse Ventura impersonation, but I don't. I think it would sound much better in his voice. Stated simply, something stinks. Yeah, that definitely has a more dramatic effect. I wish we knew the truth about the murder of JFK. Maybe we do, but the corporate media reportedly shouts at us that we don't, always leaving the blame squarely on the shoulders of one lone nut, Lee Harvey Oswald. Yet nothing has been proved, and no one has ever been punished. And just from some outside sources, uh, Jesse Ventura has been very adamant that the lone gunman theory is um, bunk, that it is not accurate. He heavily disputes that. Regardless of what official findings they may say, after nearly 50 years, the mystery remains unsolved. What a tribute to the powers of those who pulled off the greatest crime of the 20th century. To make our task even harder, the keepers of the secrets have said that 75 years late must pass until the year 2038 before we, the people, can be trusted with many of the hard facts about the terrible event. And when those who have lived through it are dead. After Oliver Stone's JFK film came out in 1991, the public outcry resulted in the creation of the Assassination Records Review Board, or the AARB, also known as AARB, which was given the job of releasing all of the withheld documents. But according to a 2012 letter from the Assassination Archives and Research Center, there are approximately 50,000 documents still held as classified and unavailable for public review. Another point that's going to be mentioned later on here in the um, book, it's actually in some of the, I think it might even be in chapter one. Aha, and here it is talking all about how the CIA responds to things like such as the uh, documents that are available, because Jesse Ventura is talking about how the general public needs to have access to those uh, 50,000 documents. I'll just read the section here from chapter one, written by St. John Hunt. The fact that my father chose to share details of his knowledge of historical events to no one but me may seem ironic and far-fetched to some, but in 1972, when Watergate exploded... My father had already trusted me in helping him with sensitive and illegal tasks like destruction of evidence and hiding large sums of unreported cash from the White House. For me, and trusting a nation, Watergate was the portal that led to doors that have been locked and buried, unknown to a naive public for decades. The proverbial Pandora's box was opened and the ghosts of the covert past were unleashed. Now, there are two things there that, all right, there are ghosts in the past and they can come out. And that's what Jesse Ventura is talking about in the introduction to the book. 50,000 documents related to the Kennedy assassination. Maybe there's a secret in there. But did you hear the more valuable thing that, firstly, um, St. John Hunt says that he worked with his father, E. Howard Hunt, in two major illegal operations, Number one, the destruction of evidence, and number two, hiding large sums of unreported cash from the White House. Destruction of evidence. 
a lot of people do not keep paper trails. And let, how do we even know that those 50,000 documents that Ventura was talking about are going to contain any type of secret information relevant to the JFK assassination? I mean, sure, maybe somebody could connect the dots and put the pieces together. And absolutely, people should have the right to look at them. If you have nothing to hide, all right, then show it. I mean... I get what Aventura is saying is that it's going to be made available to the public in 2038 after everybody could possibly be dead who did something illegal with the Kennedy assassination, but people seem like they're really on top of things with what? Destroying evidence. You got an introduction to the book saying, all right, well, uh, we need to look at the uh, paper trail. Chapter 1 of the book says, yeah, a lot of evidence has been destroyed. And to talk about a different CIA book, Chaos by Tom O'Neill, which is mostly about the Manson family, but also gets into the CIA and MK Ultra, he talks about a, a um, an incident that occurred when he was having somebody review Charles Manson's um, arrest records. And the guy just looked at it and said, you know, Charles Manson's going into jail and he's just being released. He's in, he's out, he's in, he's out. And he said, chicken shit, chicken shit, chicken shit. He was an informant. And that's one of the major um, theses to the book. Um, or it's really just a question that is explored in the book Chaos by Tom O'Neill rather than a thesis statement. Could Charles Manson have been a CIA informant? Not an operative, but an informant, someone who is being used to gather information, as well as, like, I guess you'd say someone who is being the experiment subject for clinical trials involving LSD and MKUltra mind control. So uh, the point is that about if he w had been an informant for the CIA, the next line is Tom O'Neill asked um, that guy who says, chicken shit, chicken shit, chicken shit, he was an informant. He asked him, an informant for whom? And the guy says, you will never know. So that's the way that... um. A lot of this seems to play out. Paper trails can be destroyed. And I'm only bringing this up because St. John Hunt brought it up. Evidence gets destroyed. People are doing these things, and they are covering their tracks. They're doing illegal activities, and they're covering their tracks. Now, because um the subtitle of the book includes the words Watergate Conspirator, I find it only um relevant, fair, and honest to... Uh, include a section here on Watergate. So let's look at something that was not only um, included in the book, but also written by E. Howard Hunt himself. And this starts off with um, two sentences that introduce it, but it says, the narrative is picked up in a passage from Hunt's 1974 book, Undercover Memoirs of an American Secret Agent, during Watergate. I drove to the White House Annex, the old executive office building, in bygone years of what department, and later the Department of State. Carrying these heavy attaché cases, I entered the Pennsylvania Avenue door and showed my blue and white White House pass to the uniformed guards and took the elevator to the third floor. I unlocked the door of room 338 and went in. I opened my drawer safe and took out my operational handbook and found a telephone number and dialed it. The time was 3.13 in the morning of June 17, 1972, and five of my companions had been arrested and taken to the maximum security prison of the District of Columbia Jail. I had recruited four of them, and it was my responsibility to get them out. 
That was the sole focus of my thoughts as I began talking on the telephone. But with those five arrests, the Watergate affair had begun. After several rings on the phone call, I heard the sleepy voice of Douglas Caddy. Yes? Doug, this is Howard. I hate to wake you, but I've got a tough situation and I need to talk to you. Can I come over? Sure. I'll uh, tell the desk clerk you're expected. I'll be there in twenty minutes, I told him, and hung up. From the safe, I took a small money box and removed ten thousand dollars. The ten thousand dollars that Liddy had given me for an emergency. I put one thousand five hundred dollars in my wallet and the remaining eight thousand five hundred in my coat pocket. The black attache case containing McCourt's electronic equipment. I placed it in a safe drawer that held my operational notebook. Then I closed the locked safe and turned the dial several times. The other two cases I left beside the safe turned out the light and left my office building. And this uh, next part here is, is from Douglas Caddy. These are his writings. About half an hour after he telephoned me, Hunt arrived at my Washington apartment located at the Georgetown House, 2121 P Street, Northwest, about a five-minute drive from both the Watergate and the White House. He quickly informed me of what had occurred. Hunt telephoned G. Gordon Liddy from my apartment. They both requested that I represent them as their attorney in the case, as well as five arrested individuals, James McCord and four Cuban-Americans. On June 28, 11 days later, I was served with a subpoena to appear forthwith before the grand jury. The subpoena was served on me by Assistant U.S. Attorney Donald Campbell. While I was in the federal courthouse, he grabbed me by my arm and pulled me into the grand jury room. The prosecutors asked me hundreds of questions over the next two weeks and subpoenaed my personal bank records. Ultimately, I refused to answer 38 questions, and I had five attorneys representing me. They believed that they were protected by the attorney-client privilege. For example, one question was, at what time did you receive a telephone call in the early morning hours of June 17, 1972? By answering the question, I could ultimately be forced to identify Hunt and thus incriminate him. Principal U.S. Attorney Earl Silbert argued in court that my refusal to answer to the grand jury questions on the grounds of attorney-client privilege was dilatory, whatever the hell that means, and an obstruction of justice. The, there are later parts in the book here that have been um, written by St. John Hunt talking about this very clearly, about people are confronted about things and they lie about it. One way that the CIA is able to get away with this stuff is people lie. When they're confronted about things under oath, they have been prepped and they are very well versed in the art of lying. It really is um, quite remarkable on the one hand, but it's also, I mean, it's almost just common sense on the other. Back when I was uh, growing up, I must have been really young, like six or seven years old, and we'd always watch those uh, things on TV, and people would swear they're swearing on a Bible at the time. They always did that, like on the shows that I would watch as a kid. They'd swear on a Bible, they would raise their right hand, and they would say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help your God? And I would ask my mother, I mean, I asked her one time, Mom, why is it that one side swears to tell the truth, the other side swears to tell the truth, but their stories are different? And she was just like, well, one of them is lying. And that's like kind of your introduction to the bitter sides of life. People tell lies, and they, they do it for malicious and calculating reasons, sometimes self-serving, but 
um, so much of our system is based on people will uphold the oath that they swear to protect. Sometimes they don't. Just because someone is swearing an oath, it doesn't mean that they're telling the truth. And there's a lot of stuff here in the book, um, Bond of Secrecy, that talks about that. So, and in conclusion, I would like to end with a statement from E. Howard Hunt. This is his testament to his son, St. John Hunt. And this is um, almost like an appendix to the book. Um, this is actually going to be page... 129 is where it begins. Recorded January 2004. I heard from Frank Sturgis that Lyndon B. Johnson designated Cordmeyer Jr. to take a larger organization while keeping it totally secret. Cordmeyer himself was a rather favorite member of the Eastern aristocracy. He was a graduate of Yale University and joined the Marine Corps during the E. War, and lost an eye in the Pacific fighting. I think LBJ settled on Meyer as an opportunist. Unintelligible, like himself, unintelligible. I mean, those are just, you know, the um, parentheses there. And a man who had very little left to him, ever since JFK had taken Cord's wife as one of his mistresses. I would suggest that Cord Meyer welcomed the approach from LBJ, who was, after all, the vice president at that time, and of course could not number Cordmeyer among JFK's admirers, quite the contrary. As for Dave Phillips, I knew him pretty well. One time, he worked for me during the Guatemala Project. He made himself useful to the agency in Santiago, Chile. He was an American businessman. In any case, his actions, whatever they were, came to the attention of the Santiago station chief, and when his resume became known to the people in the Western Hemisphere Division, he, brought, he was brought into work on Guatemalan operations. Sturgis and Morales and people of that ilk stayed in apartment houses during the preparations for the big event. Their addresses were subject so to change. Let me point out this at this point, that if I wanted to fictionalize what went on in Miami and elsewhere during the run-up for the big event, I would have done so but I don't want any unreality to tinge this particular story, or the information, I should say. I was a benchwarmer on it, and I had a reputation for honesty. I think it's essential to refocus on what this, this information that I've been providing you, and you alone, by the way, consists of. What is important in the story is that we backtrack the chain of command up through Cord Meyer and laying things at the doorstep of Lyndon B. Johnson. He, in my opinion, had an almost maniacal urge to become president. He regarded JFK as, as he was in fact, an obstacle to achieving that. He could have waited for JFK to finish out his term, and then undoubtedly a second term, so that would have put LBJ at the head of a long list of people who are waiting for some change in the executive branch. And I think you can get the idea there. That is the conclusion of that. And um, because that is an audio transcript, as you probably heard, there are a lot of um, uh, repetitive words and so on. But I think you can get the idea about whom he's saying is responsible and behind the uh, Kennedy assassination. But um, there's one last concluding note 
that says, When we put all of these facts together from various sources, it becomes clear that Howard Hunt's assassination scenario is at least very possible, if not highly probable. If Hunt had wanted to create a fictional scenario, he would have been he would have more likely than implicated Fidel Castro as the communist menace in the plot. Instead, his own closest friends and colleagues are implemented. This adds considerably to Hunt's story. I've been asked many times what role I think my father really played in the killing of John F. Kennedy. I have, of course, thought about it for a long time. After all the bits and scraps of information that I've sent in for careful examination of my father's notes and my own research into who the conspirators were and what connections they may have had, I have come up with what I believe to be a plausible scenario. According to my father, Lyndon B. Johnson, and just about everybody else in the military-industrial complex, viewed Kennedy as a threat and wanted him out of the way. Johnson knew that if Kennedy served another term, he probably had no chance of succeeding to the presidential throne, so he was open to suggestions and agreed to control the investigation and cover-up in return for his ticket to the Oval Office. J. Edgar Hoover and the Kennedy brothers had virtually been at war, with Hoover having the institutional edge and aligning himself with Johnson. It is alleged that, just prior to the assassination, LBJ and Hoover held a secret meeting witnessed by LBJ's mistress, Madeline Brown. Brown also had gone on the record as being present when LBJ said in a moment of anger that he was taking care of Kennedy. Billy Sol Estes, a close friend of LBJ, confided to his attorney, Douglas Caddy, that LBJ told him he was part of the move to kill Kennedy. I think in trying to find a right the right men for the job, LBJ landed on Cord Meyer. He was a CIA officer with international connections via London and was married to Mary Meyer, a socialite and mistress of Kennedy. She was later murdered on a Georgetown pathway, her home ransacked and her diary stolen, allegedly by James Angleton, who was the chief of counter-espionage for the CIA. LBJ must have known that Meyer had an axe to grind with Kennedy and wanted revenge. From here, the plot, according to my father, branches out to involve David Atlee Phillips, a close friend of my father, and the suspected handler of Oswald in Mexico City. Bill Harvey, another CIA officer, had been involved in many of the darkest ops in the CIA mafia plots against Castro. He was someone who wouldn't get squeamish about killing the president of the United States. In Harvey's biography, there are notes and cables by Harvey discussing the need to recruit assassins from the Corsican underworld. Harvey was the one with the connections to do just that, and it was my father's contention that Harvey brought in Lucian Sarti as the hitman on the grassy knoll. Harvey was hoping his reward would be head of the CIA after Johnson took control. And the book goes on to include some things about uh, connections to Cuba, but, I mean, as um, St. John Hunt already laid out, definitely identifying many Americans in this, definitely identifying people who are involved in E. Howard Hunt's inner circle, as opposed to simply blaming it on the Cubans, but that is some... I think that uh, it's been covered rather clearly in terms of his theory that it's involving LBJ. He wants to get the presidency, as well as Hoover, and 
wants to take him out. Everybody wanted John F. Kennedy out. And, it, and most people who entertain these theories about the Cubans having any involvement in the Kennedy assassination, well, the Cubans definitely wanted JFK out of office because they wanted everything to do with America to stay away from them. Think about all the things we said about the CIA doing terrible things to the children of Cuba and so along. Not that Fidel Castro was a saint. I absolutely absolutely do not think that he was. JFK had many enemies, but, I mean, laid out just there, even giving um, some connections to the Corsican underworld and uh, identifying the hitman on the grassy knoll is Lucian Sarti. I had to include that stuff because I think um, not only is it relevant to St. John Hunt's book, I'm sure a lot of you are very curious about the Kennedy assassination, but I've said clearly that things that I'm curious about is how does the CIA operate? And the, the takeaway from that section is, no matter what your theory is with JFK, there are international alliances, there are people operating in the shadows, and any type of arrangement to have JFK assassinated involving you know, agents from some type of underworld organization, it's not ridiculous, it's not out of left field. It's not in the weeds. It's not crazy. These things do happen, and the CIA does a lot of very nasty and very dark and evil things. But um, let's think about some things that we've said in conclusion. Firstly, that the CIA tries to destabilize other governments. There are manipulations that go on behind the scenes to rig the political situation that affects numerous governments. Think about everything we just said about Cuba. Well, why did they care about Cuba? Because of Fidel Castro, as well as um, geographic positioning, but there are numerous reasons why they would want to manipulate the political situation in Cuba, and it doesn't only happen in one country. It happens all over the world. I said I got in trouble on that forum for running my mouth about the Middle East and the CIA involvement there, let alone some of the connections to the CIA in Africa, the introduction of Afro-Marxism in the late 1960s and 70s, and just the whole concept of how they're using ideas and publications to control how people think. I mean, you must have heard something about that. Have you heard of Operation Mockingbird and the manipulation of media coverage? This gets into some of the other points that are in the, um, not even the Manson family and the Zodiac Killer could possibly be connected to Operation Terrify America, and so on. The point um, is that the CIA does some very nasty things, and if anything, St. John Hunt's book here, Bond of Secrecy, is one that can give us just a little bit more of a window into that world. I'm not saying his JFK theory is correct. I'm not saying that any of his stories are 100% accurate, and I really didn't like that he provided the disclaimer that, okay, now, well, the thing I might be telling you might not be true, but uh, somebody thought it was, so I'm deciding to put it in my book. Okay, I mean, the point is, I think that he, through the entirety of the book, we found some diamonds in the rough about how the CIA operates around the world. If there's anything you would like to share in the comments section, please put it down below. If you want to respond to anything about JFK or the CIA, please put that in the comments section. I would love to read your messages. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. Thank you to Playtime for providing me with this book one more time. I've made for a good book discussion. If anyone else has recommendations, you can send them into the email address or you can drop them in the comments section. You can also get me on Facebook and Instagram. And 
Remember, this show is available for free downloads at Launchpad 1, and I will see you over on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.